0: If you would, uh, take a Bible and open to the book of Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, which you'll find in the pew Bibles in front of you on page 404. Uh, if you're new to our church, Zachary already welcomed you. I uh, Maybe, I don't know, I, I'm not going to make an excuse for this in my introduction because it's just the way God made me. But uh, to be as weepy as I was during the prayer is even unusual for me. So, that's just who I am. Um, but uh, I think it's because of what I've been thinking about all week um, with this passage. Just this is a passage about repentance, which is necessarily a passage about how good and kind and gracious God is. So I think all that's kind of mixed up as I come in me as I come to this. So just maybe that helps you ex- understand. Maybe not. But uh, if you come for any period of time and you uh, hear the word preached, I hope you'll be encouraged that in whatever way you're built, that God has built you, that you find the ability to express that among God's people in a way that helps you feel at home here and welcomed here because God welcomes sinners in Christ. So, Nehemiah... Nine. Uh, As we come to this, we've been moving through this this summer as a series consecutively. And remember where we've been so far. At the beginning of this book, the Jewish nation was in tatters and their city was in wreckage, Jerusalem. The people were scattered all over the place. And then God acted and called Nehemiah as a leader to go back to Jerusalem from where he was serving in the royal court in Persia. And he led a revitalization of the city. Over the course of the first half of this book, the walls got rebuilt. And now, since chapter 8, the people are reorganizing to return to life within the city walls. It's a flyover of where we've been. But if you go a little bit farther back before Nehemiah 1, you'll know that the Old Testament in its entirety tells us a much fuller history of these people. There's much that has happened in their history with God that needs to be accounted for. The last time the Jewish people were here in this place, things were going very, very badly. And the effect still remains. Israel used to be a powerful presence. Now they're under the thumb of another nation. They used to be comfortable, well provided and safe. Now they're vulnerable and they're weak. They used to be in a relationship with God, and then they sinned. In a hopeful way, in the in this book, God has already indicated to these people that He is prepared for a restart with them. After all, he brought them back, He kept them safe from enemy attacks. Last week, we saw how God brought his word back into the middle of their life and encouraged them to rejoice because it was his delight in them and his joy that would be their strength for what lay ahead. Every indication God is giving this people is that he will begin again with them. But as we open up Nehemiah 9... The people can't stop thinking about how sinful they as a people had been. And in this chapter, they deal with their sin. They deal with it in repentance. This chapter is almost entirely a corporate prayer. Led by Israel's leaders during corporate assembly of the people. Repentance is something they are all doing here. And we've got to view that in light of the bigger story of the book. There is more to this story than their repentance. But there is not less to the story of Nehemiah and Israel. So in telling us this part of Israel's journey back to God. Nehemiah is showing us that repentance is essential for life with God. Repentance is essential for life with God. Let's read this chapter. I am going to read the whole chapter, which is a chapter with 38 verses, which is kind of like what the people of Israel were doing in this chapter. So hopefully we can see the parallel and know that God's word has been read publicly and at length among God's people for all of the history of God's people, pretty much. We can find similarities in that. Let's Read. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day and you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and the law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And they committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day. Nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. And did not withhold your manna from their mouth. And gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. And they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. And their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner so that they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Eshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into one land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured Fortified cities and a rich land. And took possession of houses full of all good things. Cisterns already hewn. Vineyards, olive orchards and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat. And delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. And rebelled against you. And cast your law behind their back. And killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously. And did not obey your commandments. But sinned against your rules. Which if a person does them. He shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder. And stiffened their neck. And would not obey. Many years you bore with them. And warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless. In your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. By showing us Israel's response to their sin, Nehemiah is giving this as a main takeaway for us. Repentance is the sinner's path back to God. Repentance is the sinner's path back to God. In that way, repentance is vital for anyone who knows they're a sinner and desires a life with God. So it's important that we are clear then this morning on what it means to repent, how we repent. And why we repent. And that is our outline this morning. What repentance is. How we repent. And why we repent. Take just a moment. To jot down. Or think about in your head. What you think repentance is. Take just a moment to think about that. Or jot it down. Maybe some something you want to think about more today. Maybe this sermon will be helpful to you. If you've not written anything, please don't feel embarrassed. Just know there's a lot to be gained for you from our time in God's Word today. If you feel like you've got this subject locked down, my prayer is that even for you and for me and for us, wherever we are, that our time of it thinking about repentance from God's Word will help all of us in our life with God. So let's begin with that first point. What repentance is. There's not much at all in this book. So far that we've seen that is not initiated by God. And the same is true here. God put it in Nehemiah's heart to return to build the wall. God put it in Nehemiah's heart to gather the people. And the people having been gathered by God. Have been reading God's word together for now almost a month. It seems like we started this. On the first day, chapter 8, verse 1. And now we're in the 24th day. And repeatedly, they've been hearing the books of the law, the first five books of the Bible read. And judging from the content of the prayer that we just read, they may have also been in in the judges and Joshua. They have been reflecting together, verse 6 and 7, on God's creation. They've been thinking about God's decision to make a people for himself by making a promise to their patriarch Abraham, verse 8. They've been dwelling and meditating on God's miraculous deliverance of the Hebrew people who were enslaved in Egypt through the Exodus, verse 9 through 15. They've been collectively rehearsing God's gift of the promised land and the settled life as a kingdom Israel enjoyed in that land, verse 22 through 25. And yet here they are with all that good history freshly returned from 70 years living outside the promised land as exiles the kingdom that was is no more the king that was is not here to lead them now they are hearing their history as the word is being read A history of a faithful God who delivered on every one of his promises, but also that they are a people, not just them, but their fathers and their grandfathers who heard the same words before them that had been read that are being read to them. And they turned away from God. Look with me at that, that history that they're recounting in their prayer. Verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to slavery in Egypt. They made the golden calf, verse 18. Verse 26, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets. Verse 28, they did evil again before you. Verse 29, they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Verse 29, later stiffened their neck and would not obey. Verse 30, they would not give ear. This is sin. This is sin described from the voice of people who are well acquainted with their sin. Sin is not an artificial construct Made by people to make other people feel bad so that the people in power can control those people. Sin is not an antiquated idea only espoused by the intellectually primitive and ignorant. Sin is not something we can or cannot espouse on our choosing. Sin is because we are sinners, but more importantly, because God is. When any person comes into this world, they step into a reality where God speaks and God rules. A reality where God is good and anything counter to God is evil. And since you and I breathe and live on this planet made by God, we must grapple with sin. We must own that we are sinners. We are sinners in our hearts and in our minds. We're sinners with our mouths and with our bodies any way we are not completely aligned with God in his goodness in the way that he is and in the way he instructs us in his word. That is sin. We are sinners in everything we could have done but chose not to do that would have honored and glorified God more than ourselves. We are that way by choice. We are that way by nature. Our fathers, our grandfathers, our great grandfathers, our first father, Adam. All the way down the line. Now, in a moment, we will think about our need to address this issue of sin with God. But for now, just notice that this history that Israel rehearses of God's goodness and their rebellion, found in God's word, this seems to be the catalyst that sparks their prayer. This reality of their sin is what moves them toward God, to talk to him. To address this, you see how God's word can function helpfully for us? In God's word, God will will chart a course for the wayward and the wicked to leave their wandering and come home to God. Repentance is returning. And that return, as we'll see, comes with a host of necessary things we need to be willing to change. But it starts with the simple act of hearing God describe you as a sinner and hearing him invite you to come back to him. Church, we want to be a people that know we need to repent. It's obvious, but it could be easily missed. The people are confessing their sins here together. It's a corporate gathering. So that's part of the reason why, just one of the reasons why we have confession and repentance dedicated in our service on Sunday morning. There is a time marked out for that. God would have us make space together to talk to Him about our sin. And so we do. This gathering of God's people that we're about this morning and that we're about week in and week out needs to be needs to be about something more. Than finding a God who gives us all what we individually think we need. We can find that in other places. We really don't want to be landing there in our relationship with God. We, we want to be somewhere where God would have us be. We want to be a gathering that agrees that we all share one thing. And for that one thing we need to return to God. We are sinners who need to return to God for his solution. So, Warner Road, we must keep returning to God in repentance. We must not stop. The day we stop is the day we step off the path of life with God. So, having seen that repentance is returning to God when we've sinned, that's what repentance is returning to God when we've sinned. Let's think now about that second point how we repent how we repent. And I promise you, I did not plan this. It just happened this way. As I looked at the text, I came out with three ways we repent. And the first one starts with an A, and the second one starts with a B, and the third one starts with a C. So here we are in the ABCs of repentance. First, we address our sin. We address our sin. Clearly from Israel's history, they have figured out a lot of different ways at a lot of different times to not address their sin. Which they describe as disobedience, stubborn resistance, deliberate ignorance, open defiance. All the ways we know we can sidestep what we should do. We will not make progress in life with God if we will not address our sin against God. It may go without saying, but addressing sin has to happen in a conversation with the one we've sinned against. There's no other way or vehicle by which repentance is accomplished. So yes, Israel mourned and grieved at the beginning of this passage. You saw with sackcloth and dirt on their head. They did those things, and I'm sure they felt all the emotions that went with the sorrow of discovering that they had been doing evil in God's eyes for generations. But they could have all done all these things as their forefathers had done at different points and not truly returned to God. Repentance requires talking about your sin with the one you've sinned against. That may be between you and I and God. But I also think the application is for us in our relationships. If you know to have sinned against a brother or sister, the way to address that is to go and speak with them. Don't wait for another time because surely we can rationalize that away and never seek or find that other time. Go now. I'm going to invite us to go now if you need to before we come to the table in a few minutes. Repentance requires we speak to the one we've sinned against. And when we talk to God, addressing our sin requires frank honesty. I don't detect an ounce of sugarcoating in Israel's prayer here. Israel refuses to make excuses for themselves. They own their sin as 0% God and 100% them. Look at verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Addressing sin requires honesty. It also requires genuine humility. The humility to admit that you can't help yourself with this particular problem. We hear that humility in Israel's appeal in verse 32. Where they say... Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. You see it again in verse 36 and 37. Behold, we are slaves to this day, and the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. Notice they aren't presuming God should do something for them. They they aren't bargaining with God. They aren't offering to do better next time. No, this this is a humble statement. God, we're stuck in our sin. We're stuck because we have disobeyed you. We have made this mess, which is our life. We hope you will hear us. Though we acknowledge we don't deserve anything from you after all that you've done and we've done in response. Genuine humility. So we should see the example being given to us in Israel and and follow it. Redress our sin like Israel did with honest and humble communication with God over our sin. Friends, make some time for this. Make some space for this. Even this afternoon, make some time for it this week. Talk to God with clarity about your sin and mine. Even, friend, if you don't feel sorrow over it. Talk to him until the sorrow comes. Ask him with his spirit to enable you to feel the gravity of turning in all the ways we do against our holy and yet good God who's been faithful in every way. Zero reason for us to have spurned him. Talk to him about this. Until repentance comes. Don't make excuses. Don't blame anyone else. This might take some practice. Seek to address it with God in such a way. Where we're not presuming on God to forgive. But we're asking that he would once again hear. And help us. We Repent by addressing our sin with God. That's A. B, we repent by believing God's promises. The book of Mark in the New Testament records the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, God's Son, sent into the world to save sinners. If you don't know much about Jesus, we would be happy to introduce him to you by reading through the Gospel of Mark with you, seriously. I really mean that. We would love to sit down with you and open the Bible and read it with you. Really. As a church, we extend the invitation to you. Even if you're a young Christian and you want to grow in your understanding of Jesus, do that with somebody else. Come talk to me. If I can help you connect with someone to do that, I'd be happy to do that. But the first thing we hear Jesus actually say in his ministry in the book of Mark is this statement. Chapter 1, verse 15 The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Those are his first words recorded in Mark. So significant. When people come and decide to join our church as members, we have conversations with them to hear their story of how they came to faith in Christ. And we ask them one simple question What is the gospel? What is the gospel? And when they have professed the good news that Jesus died to save sinners and rose to give his life, I'll often ask a follow-up question. How should we respond to this news? The answer being from Jesus' mouth, repent and believe. I think the Bible presents these activities, repentance and belief, as inseparably linked. One coin, two sides. If you're repenting, you're necessarily believing. And if truly believing, you're also repenting. Let me illustrate. Think about the person who feels remorse over what they've done because they know it's wrong or because they got caught. But at the same time, they don't really believe their sin deserves God's righteous wrath. Can we really say that person is repentant? Or think about this person, the person who says they believe Jesus died on the cross to save them from their sins and rose to new life, but uses that whole reality as their excuse to keep sinning. Exactly the situation that Paul was addressing in our scripture reading this morning in Romans 6. In that case, can we really say that person believes in what Jesus did for them on the cross? Repentance and belief are linked. I think a common misconception of repentance that we can, that I have carried, that maybe you carry too with us, is that God wants us to show we really mean it when we apologize to him. That's what repentance is, is showing you really mean it. So we think we need to be sad for a certain time or feel guilty for enough days or we need to cry. And and yes these emotions often accompany true sorrow over sin but if that's all there is to repentance we functionally would be saying that the point of repentance is to show god that we believe we're sinners that's not the point It's important, yes, but there is another side to the coin. Yes, we affirm and address God we're sinners. But the other side of the coin is, God, we're here because we believe you're the one who forgives our sins. Belief in God and his promises, you see in this prayer that Israel gives. Belief in God and his promises is the foundation on top of which Israel builds their repentance. The prayer starts with praise to God for who he is and what he deserves. Look at at verse 5. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. The prayer repeats who God is and how his character is reflected in all he does. Verse 6 through 8. Verse 17. Verse 19, verse 27, verse 28, verse 31. And then this wonderful summary pulling it all together in verse 32 where they pray. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. They are reciting, they are professing what they believe to be true about God. Now put yourself in Israel's shoes. Year upon year, example after example, cycle after cycle of God saving and the people sinning. Now here they are yet again, wanting to embark yet again on another cycle. They don't seem to be proud or presumptuous at all that God will enter into another cycle with them. But God has been communicating that this is what he's making available to them by bringing them back here. So if you're Israel, what are you going to put your hope in that another cycle will happen with God? Are you seriously going to believe there's a future on the basis of your inherent goodness? Or your ability to obey? I hope not. Are you as Israel going to seriously adopt the present day mantra that inside every person there's goodness we can realize if we just put our minds to it? Of course not. What evidence from human history are you going to point to that could make such a claim from Israel's history or all of history? Without God, all that we have to build on is the wreckage of our forefathers. On every page of human history, there is sin and shame, war, wickedness, oppression, overt blasphemy against God. In light of the overwhelming evidence that humanity is cursed with sin, only a fool would trust in themselves that they would be any different. Haven't we all been that fool at some time in our lives? Thank God that he suffers fools in his patient love. Israel sees only one solution to their sin, and it is not them. They remember that God, unlike them, has always been true to his word. They remember that God committed to make them a nation and provide for them and give them a land. And he did all those things even after they displaced him for a golden idol that they made. He kept doing it. Israel recalls who God is. One who not only is a being who at times chooses to forgive, but the one who is in his being, the kind of God who is ready to forgive. God not only chooses to show mercy, God is the kind of God who is in his being merciful. What that means is that God does not have to talk himself into forgiving you, though a repeat offender against his holiness and righteousness. He does not sit around kind of bracing himself to entrust his grace to you, knowing that in some way you're likely going to spurn it and take it for granted later today. He is in his being gracious. It is who he is to give good gifts to people who don't deserve it, cannot earn it, and do not fully appreciate it. So when we come and address our sin to God, we are, being in, we are believing in who he is and what he does. We are not, and this is so important... We are not believing in the effectiveness of our repentance to persuade God to forgive us. That is salvation by merit and achievement. And it is an attitude that will diminish our ability to appreciate and enjoy the truth of God's grace and salvation in Christ and him alone. We can come honestly and we can come humbly with our sin to God. Knowing, knowing that God has always and will always demonstrate that for the one who comes, he will never turn them away. For the repentant sinner, they will always find a gracious and merciful God ready to forgive, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Why? Because God believes this time when we repent, we really mean it. Because he can't see the future, so he'll take another risk on us. Oh, the answer is so much better than that. Because he made us knowing, knowing we would turn from him and knowing that about us. He made a plan before he made us to rescue us from the sin we would bring into the perfect world he made for us to enjoy. God planned that we would walk and he would walk with us through centuries of this back and forth relationship with Israel. Where he kept all his word and they broke all of theirs so that he could then make a better relationship with people from all over the world beyond Israel. It's obvious as Israel rehearses their history that this is broken. That the evidence is condemning. People cannot obey God on their own. Praise God that this comes as no surprise to him. And he was working in Nehemiah 9 to soon unveil a better way to life with him. The old covenant he made with Abraham was about to give way to a new one. The one he promises in the book of Jeremiah chapter 31. The promise we open this service with. Turn to page 660 in your pew Bibles. Jeremiah chapter 31. Here's the new thing. The new covenant, the new promise that Nehemiah 9 is paving the way for in God's mind. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, see Nehemiah 9, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. The promise of God that we believe when we repent is that Jesus was the one who brought this new covenant. That he shed his blood on a cross to make this new reality with his people. We believe that we can be forgiven because Jesus Christ is faithful and just. He promised to come and he came and he died in our place to fulfill that promise. There is a new relationship between God and his people through Jesus where God takes on all the obligations of obedience on himself and all the blessings come to those who believe in Jesus' death and resurrection for them. No matter how bad we feel over our sin, we will never find freedom from its chains until we believe in Jesus to take our sin away. To take away our punishment for sin. To take away our sin nature and replace it with his spirit. To lead us in putting away our sin in the power of his resurrection. In repenting of sin. We believe in God's promise to forgive our sin in Christ. That's B. C. How do we repent? We pursue change. We pursue change. The chapter-long prayer ends with a commitment on the part of Israel. Did you notice it? Verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. An agreement between them and God. We're going to look at this renewed covenant commitment they make to God and each other in the coming weeks. Essentially, they will agree with God's laws for them. And they will begin seeking to obey him and turn away from their former sins. Now, for this morning, our study, it's enough to just note that their repentance included steps towards change. Had they not included this and continued on the way they were, then God would have had legitimate reason to question whether they were really repentant. Whether they really meant what they said, how all that sin and slavery stuff had affected them, religious and pious as it may have sounded. Church, the good news of the gospel is dynamic. In its implications. Not static. What I mean by that is. When you're saved. You change. God brings. Into us. Means. That when he saves us. Can and do change us. We go from slaves to sin. To slaves to righteousness. A new desire to obey in a new way. The old goes and the new comes. The previous passions for self fade and better desires emerge to serve God, love him and others more than ourselves. So we're not just twiddling our thumbs here on earth, are we? We're not not just kind of waiting here, professing Christ's death and resurrection, thinking that the transformation that God has in store will only happen when the twinkling of the eye happens and Jesus appears. And that's when it all happens and takes place. No, no, he's doing it now. Jesus will return and finish the work, yes. But he will return having done a lot of the work in us already. That's what sanctification is. The gospel puts us on a path of so much more than I'm a sinner, Jesus is my Savior, and never the two shall meet. The gospel puts us on a path of I'm a sinner and Jesus is my Savior who will make these sinners to be like, look like, love like, serve like, glorify God like their Savior. If you want deep down change that you've tried everything to find and nothing has worked then the gospel is the place to come to. To everyone who repents of of their sins and believes in Christ, God promises to start and finish a work in you. And when finished, it will leave you Christ-like. Free from all sin, finding our all in all is Christ. I'd love to talk with you more after this if that's what you want. If God is after this in his people and he's given us desires to want us, want this, then we will necessarily pursue change. I don't think we'll always do it perfectly. I don't think we'll always do it as much as we should. But we will go further than just confession of sin. We'll go further than preaching the gospel to ourselves after we've sinned. We will go where the spirit leads his repenting and believing people into the way of obedience And holiness. I expect there are ways we should be changing. But we're not. Thank God he's patient with us. When we aren't changing. We could. And probably should chalk that up. To one or all of the following reasons. We aren't listening to his word. We aren't walking in the freedom Christ brings. We aren't relying on his spirit to help us. We aren't letting others know how to pray and encourage us. Or maybe we aren't changing because we've been professing to be godly people but denying the power of the gospel. Maybe we've been thinking we were Christians all our lives because our family was. But there's no marked change in our life from when we would say we believed and got baptized until now. Maybe because we aren't really ready to address our sin in such a way that plans to truly leave it behind and keep nothing back. I hope that if that's you or if it's me, our response is to take the first step on the path to life with God by addressing sin, believing in God and pursuing change. To encourage us in that, see that everything we need to change God is available to us this morning. His word to guide us, his son to free us, his spirit to enable us, his people to encourage us. Let's welcome this life of change. How glorifying to Jesus when we regularly pray together about how we're trusting Christ to change us to be more like him. What a welcoming and encouraging people we will be to despairing sinners. If if we were coming in here and everybody was coming here and we were hearing this conversation of how delighted we are that God is changing us. Let's take that path toward change because it will mean more of Jesus in us and more of Jesus seen through us. Through Israel's prayer in Nehemiah 9, we see what repentance is and how we repent. Finally, briefly, we see why we repent. Third, why we repent. Israel had the option to keep on in their habit and practice of sin, but there was no future in that because there was no forgiveness. And we can acknowledge the wisdom of repentance. We can see the good that comes from it in personal reforms we know we might need. But repentance ultimately will happen when we have truly understood there is no way to be saved but Jesus. Repentance happens when our hearts discover that God is the only person we can trust to save us from our sins. Don't repent because sin makes you feel bad because that feeling will fade. Don't repent only because you know you should, because that's not enough. Repent because you found a Savior who will do so much more than forgive you. He will set you free from the sin that weighs you down. Repent because Christ is able to forgive you. Repent because Christ alone is willing to lead me and you out of our slavery and promises to lead us into a new life, a better life in Jesus, in his grace, mercy, and steadfast love. That's why we should repent, because Christ is able and Christ is willing to forgive. Let's take a moment in quiet reflection to think about this before we come to the table. Before we come to the commemoration and celebration of the new covenant in Jesus, let's examine our own hearts. And where necessary, repent and believe and ask God to help us pursue change. Maybe there's a conversation you need to have with a brother or sister in this room that you've sinned against. I'd encourage you to use this time to take this opportunity to get up and go talk to them. Then we will be able to come to this table fully trusting Christ and him alone with nothing standing between us, him, and each other. In just a moment, after we've thought on these things, I'll pray and then we'll come to the table.